But yeah, dating comes into all of that because it's a question of, are these books reliable? Are they eyewitness accounts? Are they contemporary? Are they the earliest sources that we have for the life teaching a person of Jesus Christ? Or are they simply traditions that emerge two, three, four generations later that, you know, take a historical person and wrap him up in myth and legend and out of that emerges Christianity, the Council of Nicaea in 325 or something like that. On this episode of Theology for the People, I am joined by Shane England. Shane is one of the teaching elders at Ennis Evangelical Church in Ennis, Ireland. Shane was formerly a missionary in Ukraine and is also a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. He has great insights, and in this episode, we speak about the dating of certain books of the New Testament, including the Gospels and the book of Revelation, and we talk about why this actually matters. Like, why does it matter when they were written? Shane has some great answers to that, and then we start diving into some specifics as to when particular books of the Bible were written and what that tells us about how they should be understood and interpreted. So with no further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and I'm joined today by Shane England from Ennis, Ireland. Hey, Shane. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Nick. Good to be here. Well, what we're talking about today is the dating of New Testament books, particularly the Gospels, the Book of Revelation. Maybe we'll get into the dating of First and Second Peter. We'll see how far we get. But Shane, I know that you have a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary with a focus on textual criticism and wanted to just talk about this with you and talk about sure. how, first of all, does it even matter? And if, if it does matter, then how can we, how can we know? And what, what, how were the, the New Testament books like given to the church and how, how did they develop and things like that? I think that's really interesting. Because in my experience, a lot of people, I, I hear fallacies mm. all the time, right? In, in common like yeah. talk, people will be like, oh, well, we know that like, for example, when Paul says all scriptures breathed by God and profitable for all of these things that he's only referring to the Old Testament. And I was like, well, that, that's certainly not true. And so just wanted to, to discuss some of that with you. So let me begin by asking the question, how do scholars determine when the books of the New Testament were written? Great question. How do they? Well, the first thing to know when it comes to historical documents like the New Testament is that a historian has to work from relative and absolute dating. If a document has a date and a signature on the, on the end of it, you know, that's a pretty good indicator of a absolute date. Those documents are few and far between. The only other way to have a fairly reliable dating for a historical document is if the document itself specifies a historical person, like an emperor, a governor, or an event that we know, like the eruption of Vesuvius. If they make reference to those things, and even if they describe their, their distance from that event in terms of years, you know, if, if this emperor died two years ago when I was writing this letter, that's a fairly good indicator as well for an absolute date. But again, ancient documents very seldom have those things for us. And so the vast majority of documents emerging from the, the period in which the New Testament was written, the late antiquity era, are 
not dated. They give us few indicators within it, sometimes very little indication. And so it's a case of relative dating. It's looking at the content. It's looking at the people in the letter, who, who is living, who, who is being described here? What are the events that are looked at? What is the language that's being used? All of these things help us to come to relative dating. And that's not just a question for the New Testament. That is a question for historians in general. In fact, one of the most perplexing questions in Irish history is the dating of St. Patrick's Confession because he doesn't name a single person or event in that work mm. that we have any knowledge of. And so it's an absolute case of relative dating. And there's a, a number of factors that historians use, but some of those are similar to our, our quest for dating in the New Testament. Mm. So it's a question that historians have to ask. Yeah. So how do different theories about the datings of New Testament books, how do they affect our understanding of Christian doctrine, or let's say maybe the development of Christian theology and doctrine? Yeah, it is, a, of course, a very important question. Now, God in his wisdom and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did not inspire the writers to give us a, a location and date of these books for the vast majority of cases anyway, not in those specifics. And so that, that's, that's something that we have to wrestle with. We have to try and understand from the, the context when these books were written. Its importance is, is fundamental, really, I think, to our understanding of the New Testament. And it, one of the major issues at stake here is the question of pseudepigraphy, which is books that use false names and attach a name of an apostle or a person to a book, even though the book was written generations, possibly centuries after that person died. So when we come to dating the New Testament, for instance, if the gospel of Luke was, was written around the year 120, well, it's pretty much, we're certain that when Luke, the, the good physician was not around. And so it's obviously a book that's been attached to him. Likewise in Acts, if, when he talks in the first person, uh, it's likely if the book is from the second century, that that's not truly a first person perspective, that it was just used as a rhetorical device. Likewise, the Gospel of John, if it's dated to 170, as, as a, I think Walter Bauer, the German theologian in the 19th century, dated it to, well, then obviously we have a question. Certainly, John the Apostle couldn't have written this, but also we have the question of the doctrine of the deity of Jesus. Theologians have long recognized that John's Gospel is, is so clear and, and so, so straight to the point about the deity of Jesus from the get-go. If that book is the last to be written, and if it emerges from maybe even two or three generations after the life of the apostles, does that in any way reflect the authentic teaching of Christ and the apostles? Or, as it has been assumed, does it not reflect the outworkings of a natural process by which religions develop? And does it not simply reflect the emergence of a doctrine that simply uses the historical person of Jesus to present a teaching that he would have been utterly unfamiliar with and certainly his apostles would know nothing about. So yeah, dating comes into all of that because it's a question of, are these books reliable? Are they eyewitness accounts? Are they contemporary? Are they the earliest sources that we have for the life teaching a person of Jesus Christ? Or are they simply traditions that emerge two, three, four generations later that you know, take a historical person and wrap him up in myth and legend 
And out of that emerges Christianity, the Council of Nicaea in 325 or something like that. Yeah. And these are these are really criticisms or claims that are leveled at Christianity quite commonly from people who would say, you know, that what, what you see in the Gospels doesn't reflect the real beliefs about people in Jesus' time about Jesus. Rather, this is a, a right. legend yes. effect that took mm. place over time, kind of like well, we have plenty of in American culture, right? Like famously, we've got this guy named Paul Bunyan. He was a lumberjack mm. and, you know, he was taller than the trees and he had like a big blue ox oh. and, and like clearly right. maybe there was somebody at that time who was really strong. Yeah. And, but then all these <laughs> elements get added in later where you're like, okay, now we've actually moved beyond like a historical person to the stuff of legend. And some people say, well, that's probably what happened with Jesus. Yeah. And that's, that would be a very naturalistic way of looking at it. Mm. So when it comes to the dating of the Gospels, I mean, what can we know and what are the dates of when the Gospels were written? And, and like, here's one thing that I'd like to discuss is like, what are the implications of this for the Apostle Paul? Because I've heard some people try to pit the theology of Paul against the theology of the apostles, like who were with Jesus as, as part of the 12 disciples, saying that, okay, well, yeah. they'll say, you know, I... I'm a gospel guy, not a Pauline mm. guy. So help us understand that a little bit. Yeah, and that, that really gets to the, the root of the question. And that we have to understand, how does that idea emerge that we have a conflict between Paul and the, the, the rest of the apostles? It, it emerges from a perspective of history that is influenced by Hegel, the, the great German thinker in the 19th century, and particularly from his disciples, people like Walter Bauer in Germany, who viewed all of history as simply a process of struggle and looked back at the emergence of Christianity using Hegel's template of struggle and thesis and all of these things and sort of supplanted that on the history of Christianity and said, well, Christianity must emerge from a, a cycle of struggle as all history is. And the struggle that Bauer um, looked at was the struggle between Paul and his particular version of Christianity, and Peter, and his more Jewish, perhaps, understanding of the gospel. And this conflict that emerges, it, it sort of produces a synthesis, which is Orthodox Christianity, but that is an artificial construct. And that's, that is classic Hegelian thought, and that was very popular in Germany in the 19th century. So that, that is exactly when this idea of dating these books quite late emerges because it comes out of that perspective of struggle and evolution of religious thought. But when it comes to looking at the question for the Gospels, we have to start with the basics. And the first thing we can say is that the earliest sources that we have for the Gospel of Mark are Matthew and Luke. What I mean by that is that the Gospel of Mark is quoted and used as a source extensively by Matthew and Luke. So that, and okay, just to back up a second, that is obviously, that is a, a school of thought, a two-source hypothesis, mark and priority. And it's by no means the universal consensus, but I think it is a, a valuable and viable argument. And for the sake of this argument, I will be using it. But I think it is clear that, yeah, Matthew and Luke use Mark. And so the earliest source we have for Mark is Matthew and Luke. So clearly Mark predates both of those Gospels. So our dating of Mark must be earlier than our dating of Matthew, Luke, 
and Acts, because Luke and Acts are the two volumes of a single work. So again, that's, that's where we start from. When I look at the dating of Luke and Acts, it is fascinating that Luke is giving us not just the, the history of, of Christ and uh, the resurrection, but he is going on as the historian of the church to give us the history of the very earliest Christian community in Jerusalem and its spread of Christianity, and in particular, the life and mission of Paul. However, his history comes to an abrupt end around the year 62, and it ends with Paul in prison. There is no mention of a release by Paul, which historians think there is very good evidence for during this time that Paul actually was released from Rome, subsequently rearrested. Nor does Luke go into any detail concerning the uprising that began in the year 66, the Jewish revolt, which culminated in the destruction of the temple in 70. These are critically important aspects of the, of the Christian history that would shape the history of the church in huge ways. Now, I think it's evident to me that Luke finished his work in 62, and that is a viable date for the conclusion of the book of Acts. And because of that, the gospel of Luke, which comes before it, must be dated in the 60s, mm -hmm. in which case Mark is very early 60s and possibly late 50s. And that, that is a viable hypothesis because we're looking at the internal evidence. Luke uses Mark, but Luke finishes his story in the year 62 and doesn't go beyond it, even though there are critical events such as the martyrdom of Paul, Mm -hmm. who is the central sort of protagonist in the book of Acts. The Jewish revolt in 66, the destruction of the temple, the separation of the early Christian messianic community in Jerusalem from mainstream Judaism, which is, is not evident in the book of Acts. We still see people in the book of Acts going to the temple to worship that are Christians, including the apostles. And so these radical historical events that shaped Christianity are not touched by Luke at all. And there's no sense that he's in any way aware of them. And I think that's good internal evidence for a date for Luke Acts in the 60s. And consequently, Mark must be likewise pushed back into the early 60s or late 50s. And that, that works as well. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I would just say, finish that thought. And then I want to ask you about, you mentioned a two-source theory, and I want to talk yes. a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, likewise, Matthew. Matthew, again, uses Mark. It's evident that he's using Mark as a source, therefore he's coming after Mark. But again, Mark is talking, or Matthew rather, Matthew is talking about things in Jerusalem as they are to this day. In his gospel, there's no sense of the, the war 66. There's no mention of the destruction of the temple in 70. The, the context and the, the, the language of Matthew fits perfectly with a setting in the first century of Israel prior to the outbreak of the war in 66. And so these are evidences based on what we know of history and the importance of those events, like Jewish and Christian writings that come after the year 70, that are looking at the, the history of the, of the Jewish or Christian people in those days, absolutely make reference to the destruction of the temple because it is so fundamental to both of those people. So the silence of the gospels in that sense is, is critical. I mentioned the two source theory and, and that, that just goes back to how the gospel writers like Luke and Matthew what sources were they using? Obviously, Luke stresses the importance of eyewitnesses, people that were there. The Luke also makes use of written sources that he talks about. One of those is clearly the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark, big part. 
And another is a common source that both that both Mark, sorry, that both Matthew and Luke use together, but it's unnamed. And historians call that Q, Quelle, the source, the common source that they use. And those would be the, the main sources of written documentation that the Gospels emerge from. In addition to eyewitness testimony, there were documents written like Mark's Gospel and also this Q document, which is hypothetical, but I think there are there are some good reasons to think that there was such a document like Q. Even if we look a little bit later, if you look at the Gospel of Thomas, which is what we've been describing as a pseudepigraphal work, it's not written by the Apostle Thomas, it's written in the mid-2nd century, has absolutely no understanding of Israel or the Jewish people in any sense. But the sources that the Gospel of Thomas uses and, and changes and you know uses for his own benefit are all the sources that we've just been talking about in terms of written sources. He draws from Mark, Matthew, Luke, and Q. And that's important because it shows that by the year 150 or so, when the Gospel of Thomas was produced, that you know, those sources were well-established and well-known to a person writing, you know, in a different context entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even the way that Luke's gospel begins, you know, he talks about how he has taken it to himself to write a narrative, kind of like an authoritative narrative of all the eyewitness yeah. testimony. And he says, and ministers of the word, which is interesting. I mean, he could be speaking about Christian preachers, right? Who are talking about that, or he could be talking about those who have either, these would be like you know, unwritten testimonies or, or they would be, yeah. in some cases, some people think that these were written testimonies, right? Like people were taking notes yeah. of the fact that Jesus was sure. alive. A lot of people would have questioned the validity of, of an argument like that, that there were people taking notes of Jesus' mm -hmm. sermons or something. But we now know that that's actually highly likely to be the case. When we discovered the Dead Sea Scroll community, the, the scrolls in 1947, these scrolls, obviously they're biblical scrolls going back to the third century up until the year about 68. But there's a, a ton of non-biblical scrolls. A lot of these are the recordings of teachers at Qumran, the teacher of righteousness. So we have evidence of Jewish people in the first century, the very time that Jesus was ministering in Galilee, of taking the teaching of their rabbi and recording it in writing in a community far removed from Jerusalem, out in the sticks, out in Qumran, in the desert. So it is absolutely plausible that such a thing could have occurred. And the fact that Luke was availing of other sources would fit perfectly with the culture and history of what we know of Israel in the days that Luke would have lived in the first century. Yeah. So what do you think that means for the theology of Paul? Do you think that Paul got his theology, at least in part, from the Gospels, or at least from those who were the sources of the Gospels? Yeah. Again, it's hypothetical, isn't it? Um, I think that there would be compelling evidence that that Paul certainly received the gospel as a revelation from Jesus Christ, but he also likewise would have regarded himself as part of the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem, that community of believers. He, he absolutely would have had his teaching in common and drawing from their own experiences of Christ. He, he does quote in Acts 20, in, in, in Luke's account anyway, when he's farewell message to the Ephesians, he quotes a saying of our Lord. That's not recorded in the Gospels. It's more, it's, it's what we call an elogia, an unwritten word. So it may have been from the teaching of Jesus that he heard from the disciples or from the followers of Christ. It's a good example of how he had access to those oral witnesses. 
at that time. And he even quotes that to the Ephesian elders. But yeah, I, I certainly don't see this idea that there's a huge chasm or a huge divide between Paul and the rest of the disciples and, they're, and that they're each trying to create their own version of the gospel. I don't see that at all. It's evident also in Philippians that he's drawing on the hymns of the early church and drawing on earlier Christian compositions and earlier Christian summaries of the faith even in 1 Corinthians. So in no sense is Paul detached or hermetically sealed off from the rest of the Christian community, including the apostles. It's evident that they are um, drawing from each other and are aware of each other's works, as Peter was certainly of Paul, and vice versa. So it's, I think it would be, it would be a grossly simplistic view to simply view them as two completely separate schools of theology. Uh, and that, again, goes back to the, the Bauer thesis of Christian religion emerging from conflict. And so for Bauer, Christianity could only be explained as every other historical process using Hegelian's philosophy of conflict. And so that, that would come from a, a philosophical presupposition, really, from 19th century idealism. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful and interesting. And like you said, I mean, Peter commends the writings of Paul in his, in his letters. And so, um, okay, I want to talk about the dating of Revelation. And, and then if we have time, we'll see if we can just touch briefly on the dating of First and Second Peter. So first of all, talk about the dating of Revelation. I know that there's kind of two main views about the dating of Revelation amongst, uh, let's say, like theologically conservative Christians. And what are those two views and why do they matter? Yeah, good question. So the two views really that are most common are that John wrote the apocalypse either during the reign of Nero or very shortly thereafter, so around 68 to 69 AD, or else that he wrote it later during the reign of Domitian, which was a Roman emperor around the year 81 to 96. So that would be at the very, very far end of the spectrum of New Testament writings. And if it was, in fact, written during the, the reign of Domitian, then it was likely the last New Testament book that was written because the other main writers, James, would be martyred in 62, Paul martyred, Peter martyred, and John, of course, would be the, the odd one out there who is writing, not because he suffered martyrdom, so potentially he could have been writing towards the end of the first century. Okay, so uh, let's talk about why those interpretations matter. Now, I'll just throw in, like, the reason why it's significant is something you mentioned earlier, which is the question about the destruction of the temple. Like, we have this very distinct mm. historical point, which is the destruction of the temple. And, and so why does that matter for the dating of Revelation? Well, obviously, the, the destruction of the temple is not overtly mentioned, some scholars have surmised that maybe Revelation 11 is in some way alluding to the destruction of the temple. I think that was the view of Westcott and Hort. It's, it's by no means a, a consensus view. Um, so why, if the temple, as we said, is such a monumentous event, is it not recorded by John or spoken of? Would it not perhaps be more uh, closer aligned to what was happening in Rome during the reign of Nero? Um, much of Revelation, Revelation 13, you do get a strong sense of the imperial cult 
the role of the state in persecuting the church, an unprecedented overflow of violence against the church. And we must remember that the persecution of Nero was unprecedented for the early church. Certainly there'd been minor localized persecutions up until then, but until the fire of Rome in 64, the actual Roman imperial government was largely indifferent or benign towards the Christian movement, regarding it as a subset of Judaism. So not really having any main issues until Nero pinned the fire of Rome in 64 on the Christians. Then we do see the um, overflow of state-sanctioned persecution. So people have argued that that's, that seems a lot closer to what Paul or what uh, John is describing in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other issue gets into the, the question of like, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? What is it describing? Because right. if it takes place before 70 AD, you know, one of the views is that it, it has to be actually placed before 70 AD because of a few things it talks about these being the words of a prophecy about things which are going to come. And so therefore, if yeah. that is the case, then it had to be written before the things that it describes. And if what it's describing is actually the destruction yes. of Jerusalem, then it has to be before 70 AD. Now, along with that, generally comes the assumption, right, that the book is essentially dealing with the issue of the judgment upon the Jews in Jerusalem for rejecting Jesus as their savior and kind of the the cutting off, if you will, of Christianity from its Jewish roots. In a sense, like saying that they've parted ways, right? And now that's becoming mm. final. And so a lot of them would point to what was said at the death of Jesus or during his passion, where it says like, let his blood be upon us and our children. And they would see this as like, yeah. this is the fulfillment of that. And so that would be a preterist view of Revelation. Now, a futurist view of Revelation then would go with a later date, which would say, okay, these things that are happening are not just a judgment upon Jerusalem, but they're judgment upon the world as a whole, which is to come at a future date. And um, mm. therefore, when we see like a temple and things like that described in Revelation, these are things which will happen yes. in the future. They're not things that like, well, of course they described a temple because at that time when it was written, the temple still stood. Yeah. And that does get down to one of the, the key questions. How do we view the book of Revelation? Is it speaking of things that have been accomplished already, or is it speaking of a unfolding of what will happen in the last days? And so dating that view of the book can obviously influence your understanding of the author's intent. Mm -hmm. And it is, again, a question of trying to assess internal evidence to come up with a relative date. John, interestingly, doesn't give us a date. Now, he gives us a location where we received the revelation, but not a date. Mm. But interestingly enough, though, of all the New Testament books, the book of Revelation is probably the most specifically dated by the early church fathers. Mm -hmm. It is unique in the fact that we are actually given a fairly specific date by an early Christian writer who lived in the same region that John would have lived in, and in fact, would have even been familiar with some of the disciples that John would have ministered to during his own life, and that would be Irenaeus. Um, and Irenaeus gives us the, the, uh, the view that John 
received the revelation during the reign of Domitian, which again, like we said, is towards the end of the first century. So you're looking into the 90s. Um, and that is interesting because that is very specific, much more so than any other New Testament book. Um, we do have statements by early Christians about authorship, and, and those are widespread about who wrote the different books. Um, but rarely do we have a comment so specific on the dating of a book. And it is interesting that it does come from a man who came from the same area that John would have lived in and would have been familiar with some people that John himself as an apostle would have ministered to. I'm thinking of Papias and Polycarp and these types of people. So I think that is a strong testimony. Um, and it is something that is a strand of evidence that, that could help us potentially in dating mm-hmm. a book like Revelation. Personally, I do think it is a weighty source of evidence and it does require, I think, a strong counter-argument to, to dismiss that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is a question of analyzing the evidence as we have it. Yeah, and I think this is an interesting case with Revelation because the way that you date Revelation influences how you interpret it, right? Uh, yeah, as far as sure. whether it's preteristic, mm-hmm. whether it is futuristic, yeah. and then of course there's a third popular view, which is that it's an idealistic book, which which still jives with or holds to like mm. it can work with a later date, and that's actually it seems that that's what most of the church fathers and then working into the Middle Ages generally held to was an idealistic view of Revelation, which held to a later date. Uh, I've got a few quotes here uh, that would kind of lend itself towards a later dating for Revelation and then kind of two internal evidences, which I think are somewhat debatable. But um, one of them is actually that you mentioned the writing of Irenaeus so Irenaeus, uh, I've got the quote from him. It's, it's in his book, Against Heresies, mm-hmm. and it's book five, chapter 30, paragraph three, where he's talking about the, the number 666, the name of the Antichrist. Yes. And he said, uh, had there been any need for his name to be openly announced at the present time, it would have been stated by the one who saw the actual revelation, for it was mm. not a long time back, but almost in my lifetime, at the end of Domitian's reign. Yes. And then Eusebius actually quotes this, Eusebius, mm-hmm. the church historian from the early fourth century. So he quotes this and he affirms that Domitian was actually in the habit of exiling people to the island of Patmos, which is not something that we ever actually read in at any outside sources about Nero doing. Like that didn't, it seems to have been a practice of Domitian that there's some external evidence for that he was in the habit of exiling people to Patmos, but we don't read about that in the case of Nero. doesn't mean it didn't happen, but as far as I understand, yeah. there was no evidence of that. No, that's, that's important, yeah. And, and then a further one, you had mentioned Polycarp, yeah. the second century bishop of Smyrna. Mm-hmm. And Smyrna was, was, of course, one of the churches mentioned in the seven letters to the seven churches. Yes. And in his letter to the Philippians, meaning this is Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, he indicates yeah. that Smyrna was not actually known to the Apostle Paul, meaning that in Paul's time, that Paul did not know of the existence of the church in Smyrna. And he says specifically when Paul, the Apostle, wrote his letter to the Philippians, roughly around 62-ish AD, Paul having died in the mid-60s mm-hmm. AD and not being aware of the Christian community in Smyrna kind of dates the Christian community in Smyrna to after the death of Paul, yeah. um, which, which doesn't 
negate an early writing for Revelation mm. just makes it less likely, I guess. Yeah, um, that's true. Okay. It, it also should bear in mind that the, the, the temple is obviously is critical, but I think we should remember that the, the biggest impact of the destruction of the temple and the Jewish war from 66 to 73, with the temple falling in 70, is in the decades immediately following. So it's writings in the 70s, 80s that, that really stress it. But if, if John is writing, you know, in the 90s, we're, we're looking at nearly 25 years since that, and a lot has changed. Um, so again, it's, it's not that John is missing this crucial thing that had just occurred within, you know, recent memory. But if we do view that John wrote this in the 90s, towards the very end of the first century, then it's not implausible that he doesn't directly reference it. Plus, you have the genre of work that he is writing, the, an apocalypse, which, you know, which is, it's very different to a gospel. And it's, it's very different to describing, as John does in his gospel, architecture of Jerusalem as it was in the first century. And interestingly, John 5, you know, the pool of Bethesda, he describes the, the existence of that pool and its porticos as something that was present when he wrote that gospel. He's using the present tense there. And, and Dan Wallace has written on that and how that is, it is a, a good proof that John, when he wrote his gospel, is describing Jerusalem pre-70 because he's describing things as they are currently when he wrote that. So different genres, I think is also a factor that we have to take into account, particularly with the a gospel mm -hmm. written by John and the apocalypse, which comes at the very end of his life. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, what you're addressing there is kind of the, the claim that someone might say, well, if John was writing after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, mm. he certainly would have brought it up. Yeah. Right. And uh, what you're saying is that maybe he wouldn't have it because of the genre and because of the time that had passed. Mm -hmm. uh, here's, here's another kind of interesting take on this is that some people would say that the Revelation's obsession with Rome as Babylon yeah. is something which actually indicates that it was written after the destruction of the temple. Mm. And here's why is because Babylon was the party, you know, who destroyed the first temple. Mm -hmm. Therefore, by calling Rome Babylon, that's a clear allusion to the fact that Rome destroyed the second temple. Um, I think there's an interesting counterpoint to this, which I haven't heard a good answer to, is that Peter, in his epistle, he refers to Rome as Babylon. Correct. And that is most likely before 70 AD. Yeah. So I haven't heard a good response to that, but... Um, yeah, it is, a, it is a point, but I mean, it's hard to substantiate one way or another. Um, you know, Babylon obviously would be viewed within Judaism and the early Christian church as the classic type of the enemy of God's people. And so for... For a Christian writer to describe Rome as, as Babylon may not necessarily imply the destruction of the temple. I don't think it, it, it's, it's not an overly compelling argument. I don't think, um, just because of what we see of, of Babylon throughout the old Testament as, as a classic case of an eschatological enemy of God's people. But again, that's, that's a matter of, of dispute. Sure. Sure. And here's the last one. And I think this is kind of the weakest of the, the arguments I've heard, but yeah. it's that there was an earthquake that took place in Laodicea okay. in 60 AD. Yeah. 
And then in the letter to Laodicea that's found in, in Revelation 2 and 3 in the seven letters, mm. uh, Laodicea is mentioned as being wealthy and kind of comfortable. Yeah. And so the idea is that like, in order for that to be true yeah. of Laodicea, enough time would have needed to pass since the catastrophic earthquake for them to rebuild their city and reamass their wealth after having built that. Again, I think that's uh, not a very strong argument, but um, it's one I've heard. Yeah. Um, again, it is certainly possible that Laodicea was rebuilt and re-inhabited by the end of the first century. Um, and even maybe their own self-sufficiency is indicative of that, is that they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. And maybe there was a sense of here was a colony that rebuilt itself. Um, but yeah, again, it's not a slam dunk argument, but we are dealing with relative dating here. Um, and that is, mm -hmm. that is the peculiarity of, of this. Like you said, the book of Revelation, though, the dating is not just a question of the veracity of the book, but also the interpretation of the book. If it is describing yeah. Nero and that persecution, would that fit better with a preterist view of the book? Um, maybe that's putting the, the cart before the horse. I don't know. Or do we take the witness of a person who is from, who, you know, was born in the first century and lived in this region and knew people that knew the apostle John and unequivocally states when it was written. I think that is a powerful testimony that, you know, for historians, certainly that's what we would be looking for. Such a testimony as we do have from Irenaeus, um, I think would carry more weight than, than possibly looking for clues or intent of the author, which is always a difficult thing to get into, you know, trying to step into the mind of John to see his purpose specifically, what is he addressing? If we're trying to establish a date, that's extremely difficult, but simply from the tools of a historian, the witness of Irenaeus and other early church fathers, he's very important in that regard. Okay. Yeah. And I'll give you one more thing that I came across in my reading, which was that Tertullian in his time, yes. he's saying century, yeah. that the time of the Antichrist was still at a later date. And so he says that in Institutes chapter 41. So I thought that was, that was an interesting yeah. take, right? That if, if it was just seen by the early church fathers that the Antichrist figure was Nero, mm -hmm. then why would Tertullian point that to something still in the future? Yeah, that's true. Um, there, are, there have also been you know, questions concerning Domitian's reign. Was there any persecution there at all? I know, I know a number of people have questioned that. But we do have Christians that clearly talk about persecution during the reign of Domitian. Tertullian beat one, looking back, but also of First Clement is interesting because First Clement would have been written in the 90s during the reign of Domitian. So it's a very early Christian document. And Domitian describes the martyrdom of Peter and Paul in the days of Nero. And even though he's living in the days of Domitian, which is in the 90s, he says that we too likewise face the same struggle now. And he even talks about being in the same arena. The imagery is of the gladiator and the sport. And that's the very same imagery that he talks about the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. And early Christians often spoke of martyrs as um, athletes of the Lord, you know, um, dying without fear or having courage. So there is a, I think, a strong correlation there that even in the time of First Clement, which is probably 95 AD, that he likewise is saying that the early church in his day is also facing that same thing that they apostles faced in the days of Nero, which is persecution and potentially martyrdom. Hmm. Yeah. 
fascinating. Um, here's the last thing I'll ask you about yep. is just any thoughts about the dating of First Peter and Second Peter, but particularly First Peter, um, because I know that there's been some ideas out there suggesting that perhaps Peter wrote his letter in the wake of Paul's martyrdom and in the wake of the neuronic persecution. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? It, it could be. Again, it, it absolutely, there could be a situation in life that Peter is facing where persecution is, is becoming more evident for the church. You can sense that in, in a writing like that. Um, a, a, a work like First Peter and Second Peter, though, for dating purposes, we would have to say, um, from the external testimony of early church historians, including Eusebius and even people before him, that talk about the martyrdom of Peter during the reign of Nero. So we would say that those letters are from the 60s. Um, now, did Peter see the beginnings of that persecution in 64? It's, it's possible, absolutely, that he is seeing um, the beginnings of a, a watershed moment for the Christian church, which is the imperial persecution and martyrdom of its leaders. Yeah. Any uh, suggestions on where people can go if they want to know more about this, a good source? And specifically for the dating question, you know, the, the best book on dating, I, I tell the teenagers in my church, was by J.A.T. Robinson, Redating the New Testament, 1975. But it's, it's written not by an evangelical scholar, it's by a liberal theologian. But his thesis in the 70s was groundbreaking because he argued that the entire New Testament corpus was written prior to the fall of the temple in 70, including Revelation. Um, his arguments are interesting. They're, I mean... They're worthy of study and critical evaluation, but I, I do think he raises some very interesting points, certainly, about how historians arrive at relative and um, definitive dating and the, the influences that, particularly in the 19th century, radically pushed out a lot of the New Testament writings into the late first and early second century, even mid second century. What, what was the reason for that radical shift in New Testament scholarship? And he looks at that and I mentioned it briefly, but it is obviously the influence of Hegel and, and these ideas and um, religious evolution and conflict. And I, I found that book very stimulating and yeah, it's, it's, it's an old book and certainly there've been many responses to it, but it is worthy of having a look at. It's, it's quite interesting. Mm, great. Yeah. And Shane, where can people find your writings online? I know you have a blog. Yeah, I'm, I don't really have a very active blog with. I do. It's at Anglanticus. I'm sure you can put a link in that at Blogspot. But my interest re really would be patristics, which is early church fathers and text from criticism, some of these topics. But it's not very updated, but there may be some interesting tidbits there. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Shane. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. Make sure to tune in next week. I have a great episode that I recorded with two top-notch scholars, Matthew Kim and Paul Hoffman. Both of them are doctors, and they have a specialty in preaching from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and Dr. Kim is now at Truett Seminary at Baylor University. In this episode, we are going to be talking about preaching to a divided nation. Now, even if you're not somebody who regularly preaches, there is so much that applies to us because we all live in a divided nation. And so how do we function in this? What does it mean for the body of Christ? 
and how important is unity. So we'll be talking about those things in the episode next week. Stay tuned for that. If you haven't done so yet, would you please take a moment to go to the Apple Podcast app or Spotify and leave a rating and review for this episode and for the podcast that really helps boost this and their algorithms, helps other people discover it as they're searching for different topics. So once again, thank you for listening and God bless you.